I'm Marty Moscoane. Welcome to The Connection. Today on the show, helping teenagers manage their intense emotions while they navigate the stresses of adolescence. Those years have never been easy for any young person, but now teens are reportedly experiencing a mental health crisis, with many telling us they're depressed and anxious, worried about their future. That's no coincidence since we've all just been through a three-year pandemic with adolescents cut off from their friends and forced to stay at home when many wanted to spread their wings and break free of their family. So how can adults help young people through this painful and awkward time? Our guest, psychologist Lisa Damore, works with teenagers in her private practice. She's just written a new book, and it's titled The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. She says rather than shield teens from difficult emotions, caring adults can help them learn and grow by giving them the support they need to explore those feelings. All it takes is empathy and curiosity and listening, really listening and avoiding the impulse to give quick advice. Of course, not easy to do. Lisa Damore, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're covering this topic. Well, me too. And I'm glad you wrote this book because I hear so many adults, and and it was probably true when you and I were teenagers, complaining about teenagers, belittling them, criticizing them, dismissing them. Uh, And clearly teenagers are not easy to to deal with themselves. But you seem to really love adolescents, and I want to know why you do. I do love teenagers. And I think it's because they have a very special energy. You know, when you're around teenagers, there's sort of this sense of the, you know, kind of a vibrating um, engagement in the world and with one another. And I also love teenagers because you can't put anything past them. (laughs) You can pull the wool over the eyes of a child and the eyes of an adult. Teenagers are clear-eyed. They often have x-ray vision. And I think that's often why adults don't like them very much, is that they um they sense sometimes that the teenagers have their number. <laughs> Are you concerned? And, you know, much has been said about this mental health crisis that we're in. Um, and some of the reporting from the CDC talked about girls in particular feeling anxious and depressed. How do you see this crisis as, as someone who works with young people? Well, certainly I, I had been practicing with teenagers for more than 25 years before the pandemic. And I can tell you, you know, I'd never seen suffering at the scale and scope that we saw in teenagers during the pandemic. So there's something very real to it just because, you know, teenagers have two jobs. They're supposed to become as independent as possible and spend as much time with their friends as possible. And the pandemic made both of those things impossible for them. So there's something very real to how much teenagers suffered. What we're trying to wrap our hands around now is what things look like today. And the data from the CDC are very important, Um, the ones you were citing about girls in particular expressing a great deal of distress. But it's also important to recognize that those data were collected in the fall of 2021, asking about mood over the previous year and asking if um, the people who took the survey, the teenagers who took the survey, had felt low for a period of two weeks or more um, at some point in the previous Mm -hmm. year. So... Those data really map onto what we were seeing clinically at the height of the pandemic, which is that teenagers were miserable. Um, I can tell you anecdotally, now that most kids are back into the swing of normal adolescence, in general, teenagers seem to be doing better. 
we're waiting for those data to come in. Um, but that doesn't mean teens didn't suffer terribly and that they aren't still suffering, some of them, terribly in the wake of the pandemic. That is good news to hear, and thank you for that for that corrective. But I am thinking about the fact that in a lot of schools, there are active shooter drills. Uh, there is, you know, a gun violence crisis here in Philadelphia, I think in a lot of other cities as well. And often it's young people, teenagers, who are the victims of this violence. I'm thinking about those pressures of social media. And it seems that young people, and I think rightly so, have concerns, I think we all do, about the future you know, the future of the planet. How do you see young people grappling with those challenges? You know, we do see it. And in fact, prior to the pandemic, even when we were doing surveys through the American Psychological Association, asking about stress and asking about how people of different ages perceived stress, even before the pandemic, teenagers were telling us that they were more worried than other age groups were worried about things like gun violence and climate change and political polarization. So teenagers are paying attention. They are very aware of what's going on around them in the world. Obviously, if you're, you know, doing a shooter drill at school, you cannot get away from, you know, how scary it is to think about gun violence. And so there's a, you know, a lot happening for teenagers. There's this incredible internal experience of growing and changing and, you know, going from being a child to an adult, as you said at the beginning, which is such a huge transition and in its own right, very stressful. And then there are all of these things happening around them that are incredibly stressful. And so we shouldn't be surprised that teenagers are telling us that it's a lot. We shouldn't be surprised that some teenagers are unable to get to a place where they feel steady and sturdy. And what we really want to do is be the adults they need, be as supportive and available and useful to them as we can be. You also write a really interesting thing in this book that really got me thinking uh, a lot about the culture that we're in and also um, the kinds of pressures that young people are feeling. But you say that we have learned to equate mental health with feeling good, maybe even happiness. (laughs) We've done shows about happiness on this particular show. But the idea uh, that the goal of life is to feel good about everything and to feel happy about everything You really say that does us all, and in particular, teenagers, a disservice. Explain. So psychologists are all for happiness. We want people to feel happy. Um, (laughs) We're we're all for that, right? Nothing wrong with happiness. We're all for that. Calm, relaxed. We like all of those things. Mm -hmm. But what has emerged in recent years, subtly or not so subtly, is this idea that that's how you know you're mentally healthy, if you feel good or calm or relaxed or at ease which is an extraordinarily high bar and actually does not figure into how psychologists assess mental health, and it never has. So when we're thinking about assessing questions of mental health, we're looking at two things. First, do the feelings fit the circumstance? So if a kid's best friend moves away, we fully expect that kid to be sad, frustrated, nervous about who they're going to hang out with. So those are all negative emotions and those are, in fact, evidence of that teenager's mental health. Right. So negative You're supposed to feel that vary. way, right? I mean, They're someone that you care to. about be, is out of your right, life. Right, it would be strange if they didn't. And then the second question, and this is for us where the rubber hits the road, how do they manage those feelings? Do they find someone to talk to? Do they put on their sad playlist and get some of their sad feelings out by crying along to it? Do they go for a run to help themselves feel better? All of these wonderful things, you know, there's so many we could list that teenagers do to handle emotions in a way that brings relief and does no harm. Those are also the picture of mental health. 
We only worry when they turn to strategies for coping that bring relief but come with a price tag. So if they're abusing substances or if they're being awful to the people around them or if they're taking it out on themselves, then we train our attention on that. But for psychologists, the presence or absence of distress is um, not that material to us. We fully expect to see it. We often want to see it. Um, You know, if a kid hasn't studied for a big test, we expect to see some anxiety. We don't equate feeling good with being mentally healthy. I think that's just such an important point for us all to consider. Adolescence, as we all know, if we've lived through it or we're living through it now, is is marked by times of intense emotions. Is this largely driven by hormones? Is it brain development? Is it, you know, that and everything else that just makes it a time of such emotional turmoil? You know, we see it as largely neurological. And the way that we understand it is that puberty starts a renovation of the brain. Um, the brain becomes faster and more efficient, more powerful. And that renovation proceeds from the lower order regions of the brain, so where the emotions are housed, and over time, over to the um, higher order regions of the brain, where perspective maintaining lives. And so there's a juncture in adolescence, and it depends often on when that kid hit puberty, where their emotion centers have had a full upgrade, and their perspective maintaining centers are not yet fully upgraded. And what it means is that when that young person becomes upset, it can feel really potent and it can feel really disorganizing for them and for the people around them. And what we want to remember in those times is that teenagers are watching the adults around them very carefully. And they're looking for us for information about how seriously to take their distress. And so if a teenager comes home and feels like it's the end of the world that they failed a test and the parent meets them right there, we're actually proving their worst hypothesis. Hmm. Whereas if the parent says, I hear you, this is really upsetting, and I can see you're really upset, you know, what would help you solve this? What would help you feel better? If the parent can be highly engaged while still being a steady presence, in some ways we can lend them our perspective maintaining systems until theirs come back online. I love the idea of of this sort of brain development as a construction project, which of course takes time, right? It takes time to build a building. It does. And and the thing that's really wonderful about teenagers is that when they're calm, their brains work beautifully, as well as any adults. And any adult can tell you, like, their 15-year-old can out-reason them when the teenager is very calm. <laughs> it's only when they get very, very stirred up that sometimes their emotions get the better of them. In fact, you say teenagers are often of two minds. I mean, the sort of more if I can use this word, rational mind, and then a more sort of volatile emotional mind? It's true. So we refer to those in um, our research literature as cold and hot reasoning, respectively. So cold reasoning is when your kid is calm. You know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. You say, you know, what are your plans for the evening? And your teenager says, you know, I'm going out with my friends, but we're going to a party. I am not going to drink. You know, I don't want to be in that kind of position. You know, I'll be sober through the whole thing. And the kid means it. They are telling you the truth. But then what we find is that when teenagers are in socially and emotionally loaded situations, such as the party itself, their reasoning shifts. And so if the kid they have a crush on shows up and is like, hey, you want a beer? It's pretty likely that that same kid who at 4 o'clock had no intention of drinking might change their mind at 10 o'clock. And so that's part of the challenge of parenting a teenager is that under cold cognition conditions, We also need to say, that is great. We fully support your decision not to drink tonight. 
let's make a plan for if you get there and everybody's drinking or someone you want to drink with is drinking, what are you going to do then? So really in the cold cognitions, having them make a game plan, not having them try to figure it out on the fly in the heat of the moment. That's in, we're almost up in a break here, but that's interesting. Sort of giving them a scenario saying, well, what if this comes up? What do you think you'll do? That kind of thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or when I talk with teenagers, I will often say, okay, you all know what you're supposed to do. Like, you know, you're not supposed to drink or do drugs or, you know, drink, drive too fast. Talk to me about what gets in the way. And that's when we can actually have really meaningful conversations about what does get the better of them. And that doesn't guarantee their safety, but it means that you're now deeply engaged and engaging a teenager in taking their safety very seriously and thinking under cold cognition conditions about how they're going to take good care of themselves when things get heated. And, of course, the the role, the power of their peers as well. Let's take that short break, and we'll get back to our conversation. Lisa Damore is our guest today on The Connection. We're talking about her new book. It's called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with clinical psychologist Lisa Damore about adolescence. And again, she's got a brand new book called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. I do want to play a clip from Ordinary People. This is uh, actually a 1980 uh, Academy Award-winning film directed by Robert Redford. It's about a family coping with the loss of their oldest son and the mental health struggles that uh, their younger son is having. He has just returned from a hospital after a suicide attempt. In this scene, Conrad, who's played by Timothy Hutton, feeling overwhelmed and guilty for his brother's death, visits his psychiatrist, Dr. Berger, who is played by Judd Hirsch. Let's give it a listen. <coughs> scared. Feelings are scary. <laughs> and sometimes they're painful. And if you can't feel pain, then you're not going to feel anything else either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're here and you're alive. And don't tell me you don't feel that. It doesn't feel good. It is good. Believe me. <laughs> you know. Because I'm your friend. I love that movie. <laughs> I'm crying as I listen to that. Marty, it's my favorite movie. Yeah. Well, I, it, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. You actually referenced it in your book. But, but it's also, I think, an extraordinarily good movie about what therapy is about, especially therapy with a teenager. And in that scene, you know, he says feelings are scary. There he is, in a sense, what you were talking about before the break, Lisa, about, about acknowledging what it is that a young person is feeling. 
Absolutely. I um I taught abnormal psychology at the University of Michigan for many, many semesters. And I showed that movie to my students every semester. So I've watched mm-hmm. it so many times. And every time I watched it, I felt it to be more and more perfect and fell more and more in love with that therapy. Um, and what I love about what, you know, the character played by Judd Hirsch does is that he's matter of fact about it. You know, he says something that's really hard to hear, you know, that feelings are scary and they are part of what it means to be human. And what he captured in that moment is what I feel to be clinically ideal, which is his words are direct. They are um, saying something that can be very um, blunt for people. And yet his tone is at ease and okay with it and really communicating that he himself is not scared of Timothy Hutton's very, very powerful and painful emotions. I mean, most parents are not psychologists or not really good psychologists, um, as Dr. Berger in that film clip, clip. But nonetheless, you know, as a parent, I, I don't have an adolescent anymore, but I, I remember that impulse to protect my son from bad things, to want to rescue him, you know, to make the world okay for him. And, and you're saying that's really not doing young people a service. It's not, but I'm a mom too, and I very much understand that it is horrible to see our kids in pain. Like, it's the last thing we want to see. And even with my own daughters, when they've had viruses or something, I've always thought, if I could have your symptoms, I would so much rather have them <laughs> than watch you have them, right? So I, I fully understand where it comes from in parents, that your kid walks in the door and they're in pain. And our first instinct, and I I think this is a loving and powerful instinct, is we just want to make it stop. But what we want to do instead is to be invested and present and try to stay steady, which we can't always do, and that's okay, because we want to communicate to the teenager that we are not scared of their feelings, that we fully believe that the emotion can be managed, um, and that we don't need them to shut it down or feel frightened of it themselves. I think, too, uh, I mean, we all have discomfort with uncomfortable feelings. So I, I wonder, too, for parents, just the, as you mentioned, the discomfort of watching your child having uncomfortable feelings can be excruciating. You know, it can, and that has always been true. And then, Marty, right now, when headline after headline is talking about an adolescent mental health crisis, and there are a lot of headlines about suicide, I think it is harder than ever for parents to feel um, comfortable at all with the idea that their teenager is in distress because, of course, the concern they would have is, how do I know this is garden variety adolescent distress and not evidence that my teenager Mm -hmm. is in a mental health crisis or potentially suicidal? So I think especially now, it is very, very challenging for parents to know what they're looking at. Well, how do we how do we discern the difference between those two important emotional states? So the things that we are going to look for. So we fully expect that teenagers' emotions are going to go up and down. Yours and mine did. You know, this has always been true of teenagers. What we don't expect to see is a teenager with a mood that goes to a concerning place and stays there. We don't expect to see teenagers who are low or numb or paralyzed by nerves day over day. That's highly unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't expect to see teenagers who are coping in ways that are destructive. So they may be feeling better, but they're also, you know, smoking a huge amount of marijuana or, you know, using other strategies to manage that are costly. And then, of course, you know, it's very scary um, to have so many headlines and so many incidents that we're aware of around adolescent suicide. 
And what I would say to that is if parents have any reason to be concerned, if there's anything that makes them worried about their teenager's safety, what we know from the research is that the best thing to do is just to ask. So parents should say something like, you know, because of, and they need to give their teenager a reason. They can't just ask out of the blue. They need to say, because you've been in your room for a day and a half, because you were so upset about that thing, because, you know, you don't seem like yourself. I need to ask you a question. Have you had any thoughts of harming yourself or ending your life? Well, I mean, and, and can we'll, I stop you? There? Just asking that directly? Yeah. Okay. Just asking just that directly. Okay. And what keeps us from doing that is I think a lot of adults worry that they're going to give their teenager the idea. Yeah. And we know from research that's not what happens. Teen, you know, you're not going to give a kid an idea to do that. But what we also know from the research is that if teenagers are thinking about suicide, they are glad you've asked. So if a parent is concerned or an adult is concerned, ask in that way and, and just play your cards face up and um, don't harbor that worry secretly. How do you know they're telling the truth? Well, you don't, right? You don't. And, you know, that is, I think, one of the most frightening things about teenagers, but really anyone, right? That you can't always know what's going on. But, you know, we keep a close eye on teenagers. We look to see if they don't see themselves. If we do have concerns about their safety, you know, we make sure that they're in safe settings. We don't have guns around. We don't, you know, leave them unsupervised for long periods of time. But I would say if there's a worry and it's persistent, then reach out and get help regardless of what the teenager says. And the other thing is that sometimes teenagers talk about suicide and they don't mean it. And that can be scary. So it's not unusual for teenagers to say things like, oh, I wish I could, you know, never wake up again, or I wish I weren't here. And if parents hear that, they should stop the teenager and say, wait, 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 I heard what you said. Is that something you're really thinking about? Mm -hmm. Or is that just how upset you are right now? And most of the time, the teenager will say, oh, no, no, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just really upset. And then you can go down that road. But don't let a teenager say something like that without checking out what they are really meaning. Let me just uh, give out this uh, suicide and crisis lifeline since we are talking about teenagers and um, and suicide. Uh, that number is 988. And today in The Connection, talking with psychologist Lisa Damore about her new book. It's called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Uh, she's uh, in private practice and has been seeing teenagers for many, many years. Let me just quote something from your book for our listeners, and this is just about the emotional lives of teenagers. You say, first, their emotions provide valuable information and have a place at the decision-making table. Second, it is not our goal to protect adolescents from unwanted emotions because those emotions play an important role in maturation. And third, adults shouldn't mistake the extreme emotional intensity that is natural to adolescents for psychological fragility. That's really just sort of underscoring what we are talking about. But, you know, learning to read an adolescent can be, can be a tricky thing. It can. And I think there's such value then in really having a good sense of when it's time to worry, right? Because the normal day in, day out with teenagers can be a bit of a roller coaster. And so I'm so glad that we're talking about, you know, what are the flags? When is it time to actually be concerned? Um, so that the rest of it is a little bit easier to take in stride because we can we can recognize it as typical and expectable, if challenging, um, adolescent behavior. 
You mentioned earlier that teenagers are, are watching us, the adults in their lives. I mean, they might be rolling their eyes at us as well. But what are they watching us for? Well, they're watching us, I think, often to see how we ourselves cope with emotions. And and so I think that this is something we want to really focus on. I, I, I will say some of the greatest parenting advice I ever came across was on the inside of a Dove chocolate wrapper. It said, um, <laughs> don't talk about it, be about it. Oh, that's great. And and so I think, you know, so often around teenagers will think we want them to engage in healthy coping and we want them to use good strategies for coping. But then sometimes we can walk in the door and be like, Oh, I had the worst day ever. Where's the wine? You know, and and unwittingly send a message that we don't mean to. So I think one of the things they're watching is what we do when we're in distress. Do we take it out on the people around us? Do we, you know, um, or do we say like, okay, I've had a terrible day. I need to go for a walk. I need to get outside. Who wants to come with me? You know, do we use adaptive strategies? So I think the more that the adults around teenagers can use the same high quality strategies we want teenagers to be using, you know, talking about emotions, taking good care of ourselves, finding brief happy distractions if we need a break from a feeling, um, comforting ourselves when we need to. That is as powerful as anything we can do to help teenagers establish good coping strategies themselves. You talk about the importance of finding sort of the right time to talk to a teenager and often, you know, grilling them when they come in the door is not going to give you more than a monosyllabic response. Let me play another clip from a different movie. This is called Eighth Grade. It's uh, Bo Burnham's 2018 film, and we watch a single dad. He's played by Josh Hamilton. In this painful attempt to connect and make conversation with his eight-year-old daughter, Kayla, played by Elsie Fisher. This is at the dinner table, uh, and Kaylee is listening to music with her earphones in. Let's give it a listen. I said one more week of eighth grade, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, huh? I can't believe you're going to be in high school. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I don't know. You excited? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm very excited. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Been there, done that, right? (laughs) Right, Lisa? It's perfect. But, the, you know, you're trying to connect. You know, this show is called The Connection. You're trying to connect with your teenager and, you know, obviously not the right time or place. Well, clearly that wasn't working. And I think a lot of us have that experience with our kids, you know, that we're excited to see them. We sit down at dinner. We say, how was school? And they say, fine. And you say, what happened? And they say, nothing, <laughs> like nothing all day. And what I've come to appreciate is um, that teenagers do want to talk, but they tend to want to talk on their own terms. And I think this is very easy to understand if we think about the fact that they are organized around autonomy. They are trying to be self-determined and that they are much more likely to talk if they can set the terms of engagement. And one thing I discovered while working on this book is that something that was happening in my home that I hadn't really ever talked with anybody about, I realized was happening in lots of homes, which is that I was having conversations like that with my own adolescents at home over dinner and giving up after dinner. And then I would be getting in bed trying to, you know, get my novel and wind down for the day. And then suddenly there was my teenager, like, ready to chat. And this is actually, it turns out, surprisingly common. And I think what it really shows us is that 
at dinner, the kid is on our agenda. You know, we're calling the meeting, we're setting the, you know, topics for the meeting, and they're not wanting to be on an adult's agenda anymore. They've done that all day at school. They can get out of the dinner meeting. But if they wait until we are otherwise, you know, busy or shutting things down for the day, if they show up then, okay, they're calling the meeting. Um, often at those times, they get to send the set the agenda. I've actually had teenagers say to me, you know, at night, my parents, they don't ask so many questions and they don't, um, you know, bring up new topics. And I'm thinking, of course, we don't. We're trying to go to sleep. And then if they want the meeting to end, all they have to say is, okay, good night. I'll let you sleep. And they're out the door. And so what we want to remember is these are autonomy organized humans. We want to try to work with their terms as much as we can because it is so important that we stay connected. And you are listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. You actually have, a, 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 I thought, a really wonderful, clever way of thinking about this relationship as one between an editor, that would be, I guess, the grown-up or the parent, and a reporter, that's the child, the teenager in this case. How does that work? So, Marty, this is the exercise I came up with for myself to keep myself from giving my kid advice when all my kid wanted to do was vent. And so the way I think about it is when my kid comes in the door and let's say she's very upset, I've got two daughters, and she um, starts telling me about what's wrong. What I tell myself is I am an editor, she is my reporter, and she is reading (laughs) me the article of her distress. And my job when she gets to the end of the article is to produce the article's headline. So to summarize it, to distill it, but to add no new information. Um, This takes real effort, tremendous concentration. You don't always get it right, but if you even get close, a huge percentage of the time, if you say, oh, is it this, you know, and you offer your headline, a huge percentage of the time, teenagers will say, yes, yes, Hmm. thank you. And often all you have to do beyond that is say, oh man, that stinks, I am sorry. And overwhelmingly, that is what teenagers are looking for, to be heard, to be felt with, and then to be let to go do their thing, having relieved themselves of whatever distress they were feeling. And it requires the parent or the adult in this case to listen, right? Not give advice, but to actually listen to what they're saying. Not easy. Really listen. Really listen. Not easy. Not easy. But I find that exercise helps me um, do better. And you say it doesn't work at dinner because they're sort of on someone else's agenda versus their own? I think at dinner, if they are volunteering tons of information, then you're in editorial role and you should play that part. But at dinner, if they're quiet, pumping them for information, mm-hmm. we've all found um, tends to go nowhere. My husband and I used to joke when our son was a teenager that he was in the witness protection program, which is why he could never tell us anything about his life because, you know, he was sworn to secrecy somehow. It's, that's awesome. Well, here's another way to think about it. Here's another way to think okay. about it. I've sometimes thought this way. You know, school in many ways is like a series of meetings. You know, the kids are assigned to go to. They do not choose what the topic of the meeting is, how the meeting will be run, and they go from meeting to meeting to meeting all day. And they do the same meetings day after day after day after day. And I've often thought, like, if our partner at the end of the day said, tell me about all your meetings today, I'd be like, no. (laughs) Why would I do that? I'm home. It's over. And so I think often when teenagers aren't in the mood to talk about what happened over the day, I think for them, they're like, I did it. It's in the rearview mirror. I don't really want to bring it home. 
I got to go back tomorrow and do it again. And this is even in the best schools and the most wonderful conditions. It's still tedious, and we ask a huge amount of teenagers. And I think by the time they're home, a lot of them are done with the day. We're almost up in a break here, but does that explain why teenagers will say, I hate school? It can partially explain why teenagers say, I hate school. Um, school's tricky, and, and teenagers are often incredibly well-behaved under conditions that I think a lot of adults would find um, very, very hard to be a good citizen through. I want to pick up on that after our, our very short break. And again, Lisa Demore, our guest today on The Connection. Uh, she's a clinical psychologist. She has a private practice with teenagers, and she writes about teenagers. Uh, her most recent book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Do stay with us much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We're talking today about what young people need and want. Our guest is psychologist Lisa Damore, and she's got a new book called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Lisa, I want to pick up on something you said right before the break, which is uh, about school. In a sense, you know, Maybe we should redesign schools that are places where teenagers want to be. We could do a whole hour on that. But how can we make that a better environment for young people? Well, it's hard because, you know, one of the analogies that I bring across in this book is that I think it's useful to liken school to a buffet where we require teenagers to eat everything. And, you know, when adults go to a buffet, we go get our favorite thing, take it back to the table and enjoy it. And... At school, we say, you know, fill your plate with every bit of this and eat it, eat it all. And I do think there's some value in asking teenagers to try things they may not like or they may not go back to left to their own devices later on. So I think one thing we can do, actually, is to just acknowledge that reality, that we are asking teenagers to eat things that would not be their preference and to take away the shame that is sometimes caught up when kids don't like particular subjects. You know, we don't have shame around not liking particular foods, and I think we should do the same around school. Um, but then, to get to your question, like, the more choice kids have, the happier they are, right? Yeah. Just like the more choice you have in terms of what you get to eat, the happier you are. So to the degree that we can offer choice to young people, it both makes them happier. It also improves the motivation. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to be motivated to do the things where you feel like you had some say versus the things that you feel you're made to do. Let me pick on something that we were talking about earlier, but um, how do you suggest parents, though, handle true arguments, true disagreements, um, true fights, frankly? I mean, this happens in families. It's not that unusual. Yeah. How do you suggest a parent manage that when they're furious at this teenager they're frustrated with them. They have done something wrong, whatever that thing is. How do you suggest a parent navigate through those really intense emotions, not just for teenagers, but for parents as well? 
So not a lot tends to go well in the, at the full heat of the moment, right? So if the parent's really hot and the teenager's really hot, my general advice would be that's probably not a great time to have this conversation. You know, everybody needs to cool off a little bit and come back to it. So I think that's a place to start. I think then, you know, that, that attaches to something else, which is the feelings themselves are not problematic. Like the parent may have every right to the anger or the teenager may be angry back and also have a right to it. How they get expressed matters. And, and you can't express feelings in ways that are abusive or harmful to right. other people. So, you know, cooling off a little bit can help with that. One strategy that can really help when a teenager and a parent have come to an impasse is um, for them to try to be in each other's shoes. So if a parent, you know, if a teenager is insistent that they've done nothing wrong, they went to a house that they, you know, were told not to go to, and they insist that there's no big deal and the parents shouldn't be upset, the parent might say, okay, I'm going to try to articulate this from your position and really try to earnestly do that, where the parent lays out, here's what I think you're thinking, and really try to see it from the kid's perspective. Hmm. Having done that, they can say, what did I miss? And then they can say, okay, now you do that for me. Can you do that for me? And ask the teenager to voice the parent's view of the situation. It doesn't magically solve everything, but there is something about the act of having to, in your own words, lay out the other person's perspective that tends to um, make resolutions more possible. Well, let me play a scene from another movie, and uh, this is Greta Gerwig's 2017 coming-of-age film, Lady Bird, exploring the sort of painful and challenging mother-daughter relationship. Uh, This is during the teen years. Perhaps, uh, Lisa, they could have used some of your advice in this scene. Um, In this classic scene, Lady Bird is played by Cersei Ronan and her mother, Laurie Metcalf, and they're driving home after a college visit. I want to go where culture is, but like New York, I raise such or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, no, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. I should add that that, that scream is um, Lady Bird. I believe she jumps out of the car. I believe I have that right. Um, I, I guess that's what not to do, right, Lisa? <laughs> piling Jumping on. Jumping out of moving cars, best to be avoided. But, <laughs> yes, but, um, but the piling on of, of criticism, complaint. Yeah, no, the mom's really mad and yeah. doesn't handle herself well. And And I think, you know, when I listen to that, what I hear is it can feel very personal the way t- teenagers respond to adults. Like the way they act can feel rejecting or entitled or ungrateful. And, and I think, um, there's way it's, it's not possible all the time to not react to that. I I do not have some idea that parents should be like Zen masters who are unmoved by their teenagers behavior. And I don't think that teenagers would want or like that either. But I think the goal is to always try to see it from the kid's perspective and to Assume that it's not personal, that there is something that the teenager is trying to work their way through, work out for themselves, and they often do that by pushing back against the adults in their immediate environment. Um, It's enormously hard to be a teenager because you are tasked with becoming independent while living under the roof of the people who put your diapers on, (laughs) you know, so they're going to accomplish that independence psychologically. And it doesn't always feel good, but it's very rarely as personal as it feels. 
You write about some of the gender differences, which is an interesting thing to discuss when I think more and more teenagers, you know, don't see the world in a kind of strictly binary way. There's much more gender fluidity. And yet you say, looking at boys and girls, teenage boys and girls, there seem to be some differences. What do you see? So, you know, this we've studied this in a very binary way for a long time, and, and those results still carry water. And what we're really now working to make much more, you know, understanding of is like, what about kids who don't fit those categories? And those, those data are on their way. But when we, you know, do broad gender strokes, so this does not necessarily apply to any particular kid. This is, you know, looking at big groups. On the whole, when they're upset, girls are more inclined to discuss their feelings, to talk about what they're feeling. We, we socialize girls to be more fluent in the verbalization of emotion. And boys are more likely to manage their distress by distracting themselves, finding something else to think about, um, finding something to do until the feeling dies down. And one of these is not better than the other. What we do see is the extremes aren't great. If you're always talking about feelings, um, it can really run the risk of turning into rumination where you just are spinning your emotional wheels and feeling worse as you go. And if you're never talking about feelings and always relying on distraction, you end up cut off from other people and cut off from yourself. Let me play a clip from another film, and this is a, a 2018 film, The Hate You Give. It's based on Angie Thomas's award-winning young adult novel about a young black teenager, Star Carter, who witnesses the fatal police shooting of her childhood best friend. This is the opening scene from the film when Star, who is played by Amanda Stenberg, recollects being given the talk as a young girl by her father, who's played by Russell Hornsby. Let's give it a listen. Now you keep your hands posted, because moving makes the police get all nervous. If I ain't with you, you ask for me. It can get real dangerous, so don't argue with them. But keep your hands where they can see them. This is how you gonna act. We straight? I was nine years old when I first got the talk. Seven, my half-brother, was ten. Sakani was one. Now, just because we got to deal with this mess, don't you ever forget that being black is an honor because you come from greatness. This is a really good film, I have to say, but I, I wanted to make sure, Lisa, that we talk about the particular pressures that I think young black teenagers and, and I think even in more particular young black teenage boys, um, the kind of pressures that they're under in our culture today. Um, the way we think about this as psychologists, one way we approach it is to talk in terms of adultification, which means that um, white audiences especially tend to view black teenagers as older than they really are. And um, another way to put it, and I think this for me gets closer to the heart, you know, as less endowed with childlike innocence and less deserving of protection. And so for girls, um, black adolescent girls are seen as more sexualized than white adolescent girls, and black adolescent boys are seen as more dangerous or violent than white adolescent boys. And the ramifications are horrible, right, and, and at times lethal. And, um, and this is something we are very easily able to document in you know, research studies, um, starting actually at surprisingly young ages. Kids see, um, white research subjects see black kids as being... Um, more problematic than white kids while engaging in the exact same behavior. So it's something, um, you know, that I wrote about in my book, and there's nothing I say in my book that black families don't already know, sure. but my aim 
in trying to really bring it across in the book is for the rest of us to be really, really aware of the um, undue burden that um, that is placed upon black families and black teenagers. Yeah, I was looking at something recently that uh, black teenage boys are seen as you know literally just bigger and taller. I mean, by inches and pounds, not just yeah. you know a couple of inches here and there, but you know six three as opposed to five ten. Yeah. No, it's um, it's a it's a pretty staggering effect, and the ramifications are awful. I'm looking at the clock here. Let's talk about teens and technology again. We could do a whole hour on this, but um, you know, first of all, what did you do with your teenagers in terms of phones and devices and all the things that that we all have, frankly. Um, well, I did have a rare advantage that I'd been practicing for a long time before my kids got there. And so I'd seen all of the ways it could go sideways, and that helped. Um, so the first thing I did is I waited as long as I could to give them devices. Um, my older daughter got a phone at 13 when she started in the seventh grade, and that involved a bus and a pickup and all sorts of complexities. My younger daughter got hers at 12 because her sister was at college, and I wanted them to be able to connect uh. on a separate channel. So I waited as long as I could, and then upon giving them devices, I gave them the dumbest device I could, meaning um, we started with an iPhone for both of them, but it had no browser and no social media apps, that it was largely a texting and speaking machine. And um, kids can get a long way on texting, and kids can stay meaningfully connected to their friends with text for a long time. So I delayed social media as long as possible. And for me, social media should only come in if the teens in real life social relationships are compromised by the fact that they don't have social media, that it's important that kids have friends and stay meaningfully connected. The other thing, Marty, I did, which I feel very, very strongly about, and it was easy to establish at the outset, it's harder to establish after the fact, is I said, you know, none of us take our phones in our bedrooms ever. And, you know, they're not there at night, but they're definitely, you know, it's for sure, you know, rather not have them in the day in the rooms um, that, I am very, very vigilant about sleep. The connection between mental health and sleep is incredibly powerful. And we have just absolutely truckloads of data about how disruptive having digital technology in the bedroom overnight is to sleep for all of us and teenagers especially. Well, I'm thinking, I mean, we're all kind of hooked to our hooked on to our devices, are we not? Yeah. We are. And and what's amazing, you know, we're in some ways we're so Pavlovianly attached to our devices that we have research showing that even while you are sleeping in a room near your phone or with your phone in the room, you don't sleep as well. Um, and we think it's because while we're awake, if the phone is proximal, we are deploying some energy to not touch it. And even while we're sleeping, we're doing the same. So better to have it all the way out of the room, um, better to start with you know charging it you know, away <laughs> separately. Um, and again, it's a lot easier to establish that at the outset than to try to put it in place later. And, you know, the thing that I would say more than anything is that, you know, the moment when a kid is asking for a phone, they really will agree to anything. And so it's a great time to start with pretty rigid rules that you then, you know, loosen over time. Well, you are listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. But I wonder, Lisa, and there, you know, there are kids, I, I know some of the kids, they're they're pretty hooked to their phones and, and it, you know, whether it's a lifeline or whatever it means to them, it seems really difficult for them to give it up. What do you do about that? Well, 
I think you really make the case for sleep at a minimum, that it is critical for all of our health and well-being um, to get a decent night's sleep. Teenagers actually need nine hours of sleep a night, which is way more than um, I think a lot of adults even realize. And so um, anything the teenager is struggling with, and teenagers may be struggling with something very real, is going to be made worse by fatigue. And so just to make that case that, you know, yes, the teenager may be having a hard time and yes, the teenager may want to be connected and need to feel connected. But if that's getting in the way of sleep, it's going to actually make the hard time worse. You really do specialize in in adolescence. So I do need to ask you, Lisa, about what you were like as a teenager. Oh, um, you should probably ask my parents. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I loved being a teenager. And I think it's part of why I love caring for teenagers. For me, it's when my my world got a lot broader. I had a terrific pack of friends. I just got really lucky. There were four of us. We were inseparable. Um, I grew up in Denver when it was a small town. Um, We only had one department store, and it was not a national chain. So we were outdoors all the time. We were playing all the time. and and so for me, I think, you know, like teenagers today, like I love being with my friends. I loved, um, you know, being out and about doing new things. And, um, you know, and I was lucky to have the freedom to do so and to be able to do so in a safe environment. And I'm assuming for, for all of us who have raised or are raising uh, teenagers, a lot of this stuff starts when they're little, right? When they're toddlers or or a little bit older than that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you want to take full advantage of those early years to build a strong relationship. You know, it's easier in some ways to get along with an eight-year-old. You know, they think we're funny. They want to go to the grocery store with us. And so I think the more that parents can sort of bank that, you know, that strong relationship, that's a good thing to fall back on on the way into adolescence. And and I think the other thing that is so important is for people to understand that adolescence begins around 11, that we uh-huh. market around when puberty sets in and even if you can't see the outward signs, usually puberty's underway by about then. So it's not strange for a fifth or sixth grader to want more privacy and to not want you to call them their childhood nicknames anymore. That is typical and expectable, um, but often earlier than people are counting on. Well, Lisa, such a pleasure. Such important information. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Again, Lisa Damore, clinical psychologist, author of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Of oh, There I go again. <laughs> the Connection. I almost made it. Uh, Debbie Builder is a producer, senior producer, I should say, of The Connection. Paige Murray Bressler, a producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoin, and one day I will say the name of the show correctly through the full hour. Thanks so much for joining us.